0: What's up, Joe? What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Sports 360. I'm your host, Jeff Fennell. Today, we'll be talking baseball with Jeff Fry. Jeff possesses an interesting blend of perspectives. He played in the big leagues for 10 years. He's a veteran sports agent who has represented scores of major league players. And recently, he joined the broadcasting ranks working pre and post games. the Texas Rangers on Fox Sports Southwest. Jeff's take on the game is fascinating. I think you'll enjoy what he has to say. So I invite you to settle in for our conversation with Jeff Fry on Sports 360. And welcome to the show today, former Major League player Jeff Fry. Uh, Jeff played in the major leagues from 1992 to 2001. Uh, These days, Jeff is a sports agent. He represents several major league players. And most recently, he has started uh, doing broadcast work on the Fox Sports Southwest network for the Texas Rangers. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks a lot, Jeff.
0: I'm glad to have you on. I'm I'm really glad to have you on. Um, You know, I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, I know many former players. I know probably more sports agents. And I also know my share of uh, broadcasters. But I wanted to have you on the show because you sort of give me three in one. Uh, I can do a little little bit of one-stop shopping with you and getting the perspectives on on the game of baseball from a, you know as a former player as an agent and now as as a broadcaster so i wanted to have you on and and get those different perspectives from you in in one sitting so i really do appreciate you taking the time to to come on the show today yeah um, i'm
1: looking forward to it jeff i'm a, a jack of all traits, master yeah. of none <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know um uh, you know, I, I often think about, you know, the game as I'm watching it as a from a fan perspective. And one of the things I try to do all the time, and we're going to talk about your career and touch on as many things as we can in the time that we have. But one of the things that is important for me because it just teaches me so much when I talk to former players is talking to them about today's game and when they played i mean you, your last game was in 2001 I'm not trying to date you jeff it just is what it <laughs> is <right? laughs> it is what it is <laughs> but your, your last game was in 2001 and so you know you played at a time where it, it, it was a bit different the game was different then than it is now and i see it from a from a fan's perspective but From a player's perspective, someone who played in the big leagues as long as you did, how do you see the game today compared to when you played? What are some of the major differences? And, you know, talk about the good and the bad, but what are some of the major differences as you see it?
1: Well, I I mean, I'll start with the good. To me, I mean, there's more talented baseball players now than ever. I mean, these guys are, you look at the pitchers, everybody seems like they throw 95 to 100 miles an hour. Not necessarily pitchers, but they you know have a great velocity, and you see all these, especially this year. I mean, all these young players coming out of nowhere that are just amazing young players. I remember when I came up, it was you know you just tried to stay in the big leagues, and you didn't expect the rookie to make an impact. Like some of these rookies are coming up and making immediate impact, and you just didn't see that back when I played, and. You know this Albie's kid. Um, some of these young pitchers, the pitcher for the the Brewers, who's striking out two two inning two guys every inning. Hader, I think his name is. Right. I, I mean, it's just a lot different as far you know that aspect. As far as the game, the game has definitely changed. Um, it's you know it's more the the home runs and the strikeouts, and I'm not a fan of that. Um, I was not, you know I was. Uh, a smaller guy still still have a smaller guy but you know that I learned to um you know hit line drives and ground balls and occasionally maybe run into a home run um but you know now it just seems like the strikeout is is accepted and when I came up it was not accepted it was I was like you know I told you before I was I was embarrassed when I struck out I felt like that was the biggest failure that I could have. And I did everything in my power not to strike out. I choked up. um, You know, I would do anything to just put the ball in play because that was my role. My role was to get on base, to move runners, and definitely not strike out or hit the ball in the air. I got yelled at when I hit the ball in the air. Really? Yes, it was. Yeah. If I got, if I went up there and hit a pop-up in the infield, I knew that i messed up.
0: You know, Uh, Jeff, that's, that's interesting, Jeff, and I'm sorry to cut you off there, but that's, that's, that's interesting, right? Because as I watched the game today, it seems as if swinging that the upward swing, the uppercut swing is in vogue. It seems everyone's trying to hit the ball in the air Um, because I think there's some belief among the sabermetricians that, you know, you have more success hitting the ball in the air than hitting it on the ground.
1: Yeah. And I I think a lot of that is, you know, there's so many statistics now and so much analysis about, oh, if you hit the ball on the ground, you know, 80% of the time you're going to, you're going to make an out. And if you hit the ball in the air, it's a less percentage of times that you're going to make an out. And I think that unfortunately that hitters are patterning their swings now because of that. And, you know, not everybody can hit the ball out of the ballpark. And I think, you know, what I was taught was hit line drives. That's your ultimate goal, hit a line drive. And I just don't see that. And if you see the uppercut swings, they're not in the – the bat is not in the strike zone for very long. It's just a glance. It just cuts through the strike zone. And when they run into it, it goes a long way, but they don't run into it very often. And, you know, a funny thing I saw last week was Harold Reynolds interviewed Miguel Cabrera, who's, you know, one of the best hitters of all time and definitely one of the best hitters of the last 15 years. And he didn't even know what what, uh, launch angle was. He asked Harold, what's launch angle?
2: Uh
1: And Harold laughed and he said, you know, he goes, I try to take my hand to the ball. If the ball, how are you going to get on top of the ball if you're swinging up? he goes the only time i would ever drop the barrel or create a, a launch angle is on a pitch down that i'm trying to lift but here's one of the greatest hitters right. <laughs> you know in the last 15 uh-huh. years that you know he doesn't care about the launch angle he he learned how to hit it a certain way and he's not going to change it because people these sabermetricians are saying he shouldn't hit the ball on the ground he's going to do whatever he he learned to do as a kid and it's been successful right. for him
0: and isn't that something I mean, earlier when we were chatting you 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 asked a question, you said what what happened to see the ball hit the ball?" and can you imagine a young Miguel Cabrera coming up today and coming through the system today, and then someone changing the way he would hit to so that he can work on his launch angle? Can you imagine that? No, and we would have never seen what he's
1: done in the last fifteen years. I mean, you know, as a kid, you start hitting a certain way, and you tweak it as you grow up, and every year maybe maybe you make improvements, but your swing is your swing, you know. And you can make little changes, but to make wholesale changes, say, okay, now we want you to swing up instead of swinging level, just doesn't seem like it makes sense to me.
0: Right. And just so uh, the listeners understand. I mean, you were a hitter. I mean, you hit 290 for your career. So it's not as if you're talking about something that you're unfamiliar with. I mean, you were a good hitter, um, 290 over a big league career. Um, but going back to the analytics, um, what what's your general view on it? I mean, we touched on some things, you know, the launch angle. We, we hear about exit velocity, um, certain statistics that I grew up with when I was flipping baseball cards back When kids used to flip baseball cards, seem to not have as much importance uh, to the to a certain um, segment of the baseball community. The the analysts, um, you know, RBIs for hitters, wins for pitchers and things like that. What's your general view on sabermetrics and how it has affected and continues to affect the game today?
1: Yeah, I'm not a fan, Jeff. I've got to be honest. I mean, <laughs> I, I collected baseball cards as a kid, and I've got thousands of them saved. But when I looked at a hitter's baseball card, I looked at his batting average, his home runs, and his RBIs. Maybe his stolen bases. Okay, when I looked at a pitcher, I looked at his wins and losses, or his saves if he was the closer, and his earn-run average. To me, those were the stats that mattered. And when, In our generation, those were the stats that mattered. You know, And to me – the most important stat now is o p s because it combines your slugging percentage and your on base percentage and to me those are that's a telling fact because you see the the guys every year who have the best years and they have the highest o p s as far as the war i don't really i'm not i don't buy into the war I do buy into um you know still the earn run average um the wins and losses batting average run scored things like that. I'm not a big fan of all this and I don't know that um that it's necessarily changed the game to where um you know we devalue those things but I but I do hear on the MLB network quite often, you know, that wins don't matter for pictures anymore and these things don't matter and I'm like, Well how come they've mattered for a hundred years and now in the last ten years they stopped mattering? It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me. No you
0: know? and, and, and and as long as winning Is still the point of the competition. I mean, you need pitchers who can go out there and who are gamers, right? I mean, you know, when you had a game and it's, it's late in the season and and maybe a playoff position is on the line. You wanted a guy who was taking the Hill that day, who you thought could get your W. Yep. And his goal was to get the W. It wasn't
1: to go six innings. Right. He was going to stay in that game. I mean you look just just look back at some of the greatest pitchers back then, you know, Nolan Ryan and, and Bob Gibson and these guys and these guys were having twenty complete games in a year. Right. There's guys pitched pitching the last ten years and they'll have twenty complete games in their career because they've completely changed you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the injuries and you know, I saw a stat the other day where Nolan Ryan pitched a game, like fourteen inning game. Um he had 19 strikeouts, and he threw 240 pitches. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, that would never happen today. And Nolan no Ryan point. was very rarely hurt in his 27-year career, so you can't say that that's not something that can be uh, be done today. It's just we've conditioned these guys to, all right, we're going to max out at 110 pitches. It doesn't matter if you've got a no-hitter or, you know, you're the best guy we've got to get this guy out to win the game. We're taking you out to protect your arm. And I think we saw that. Unfortunately, what happened with the Nationals, with Steven Strasburg. Right. They were in a great position, you know, to head into the playoffs, and they shut down their best pitcher. And to me, that was – to me, that's the reason they haven't been what, what they should have been in the past since that happened. To me, that's like baseball baseball gods are saying, okay, you want to mess with the the fabric of our game and, and the way it's been played? We're going to show you what what the end result is. And they haven't been – what everybody has expected them to be since then.
0: That's right. And a couple of years after that, the Mets went through a similar situation with Matt Harvey, and there's a little bit of controversy about that. What are they going to do? And they actually allowed Harvey to pitch in the postseason and he and he ended up pitching uh, fairly well. Um so, you know, it, it's interesting, it's an interesting it's an interesting look for the game. Now, on this point what are your thoughts on something we have seen this year coming out of Tampa? And I think there might've been one or two other teams that have done the same thing where they started the game with a relief pitcher.
1: Yeah. I <laughs> just, I think we're trying to reinvent the wheel. You know, I, I know it seems like it, it you know, a couple of times it worked. I will tell you in spring training, especially in spring training, when, you know, pitchers aren't going extended periods of time, everybody's trying to get into shape for the season where you face sometimes you face a different pitcher every at bat in a game and if you get three at bats a different pitcher it's tough it's tough because you know you can't you know you can't get used to a guy and you've seen him a couple times and you're comfortable now you know what he's got so that does make it tough but the way I look at it is use six relievers in the game okay what are the odds that all six are going to have a good day that day all it takes is one of them to have a bad day, and we're going to lose the game no matter what. And so we're just going to run them out there, and you know, each guy is going to throw an inning or two or whatever, and let's just hope that every single guy has a good day that day and won't have a chance to win. When you got five starters, you know most teams have probably three quality starters, unless they're the Houston Astros, then you know where you're going to get that day. You're going to get five to seven innings, maybe more, these guys, and you know what you're going to get every fifth day. And I think the whole reliever thing is just kind of something that's, you know, it's just like they're trying to trick us a little bit, and I don't know.
0: I'm not a big fan of it. Right, right. Now, um, now Jeff, you are in the broadcast booth, and we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, in a few minutes for the Texas Rangers. And you were drafted by the Rangers, right, back in, what, 1988? 19... Eighty-eight, Back in 1988. Um, so it must be pretty cool to be in the broadcast booth now for the team that originally drafted you. But, you know, you were telling me a, a very interesting story about how it came to be and all the circumstances surrounding you. Uh, being drafted back in 1988. And uh, I just think it was a fascinating and a funny story. So um just want to ask you, can you share that with with the audience, of, you Know of how it came to be that you were drafted by the Rangers back in
1: 1988? Yeah, sure. I uh, just finished my uh, senior season at Southeastern Oklahoma State in Durant, Oklahoma, NAI school. We had a great year. And our season was over. I thought my career was over. Um, I hadn't we didn't really have many scouts coming to our games back in those days. Um so I figured I was done and I had a teammate who was a really good player who pretty much knew he was gonna get drafted, he was a junior. I uh, had been all American a couple of times named Benny Calvert and he was pretty sure he was gonna get drafted by the Reds. Well he got an invitation to a Rangers tryout and uh he wasn't gonna go. So I said, Well let me have your trial, let me have your invitation. So I didn't know if I could even do that, and my my college coach called Doug Gassaway, who's you know Bus has already he passed away this past year, but he was one of the the best scouts, you know, signed one, you know one more I think big leaguers than any other scout. So he called Doug Gassaway and said, hey, uh, Benny Culver's not going to come to this tryout, but Jeff Fry is going to come, if that's okay, and that he's not a guy who's probably going to stand out at the tryout. But, uh, you know, you have to see him play over a prolonged period of time to appreciate him. So I show up at Midwest City, Oklahoma High School. There's probably 60 guys there. We go take ground balls. A typical try, you know, everybody runs a 60-yard dash. I don't even know what I ran. Um, We take ground balls, and then you get in the cage to hit. So I get in the cage. We're using aluminum bats, and I'm facing the guy that I faced in junior college. So you just get in there. He's just throwing fastballs, trying to, you know, he's trying to light up the radar gun. And I had a great first round. I was hitting line drives everywhere. Next round, I come out of the cage, and I could tell they, you know, they liked what I did the first round. And So they said, all right, next round, we want you to get in there with a the wooden bat, which I'd never hit with a wooden bat, except as a kid. Maybe I had a – I remember having a Willie Mays um, bat that I got from the Giants game as a giveaway on bat day. And so, you know, I played with, played with my cousin, you know, with a tennis ball <laughs> or wiffle ball and I've used my Willie Mays bat. That's really the only time I'd ever used a wooden bat, which is a lot right. different than nowadays when kids are all using wooden bats at a younger age. So I get in there and they're before I even get in the cage, they're like, all right, we want you to change your hands like this. and We want you to hold the bat here. These people have never seen me play. And now they're already making after one round, which was a good round. They're changing me. So now I get in there. Now I'm facing another guy I've never faced before, trying to do what they're, they told me to do. And I hold my hands, you know. So at first pitch, I take a pitch. You know, Next pitch, I swing at, I hit a home run. Not just over the fence, but it hit the back fence of the parking lot. Wow. You know, I'm not a home run hitter. <laughs> I mean, I hit nine home runs in my senior year in college. With aluminum bats that were, you know, the older aluminum bats, the Black Magics and the Eastons, you know, they didn't have the B, they didn't have the BB core the limitations like they do nowadays. So that it was a big help. It was a lot different than wood, and I, you know, so I hit this guy all over the place with a wooden bat. Next, they call me out and they say, all right, we got one more guy we want you to face. and bring in this guy named Mike Converse who just got released out of the minor leagues for the Reds. He's like six ten. He gets in there. And I hit a home run off him, too. So I hit three home runs, and it was, like, unbelievable. So I come out of the cage, and all these other guys that are there trying out are, like, coming up to me, patting me on the back. I'm like, you know, that doesn't happen either at a trial camp. It's like I put on such a show that even the other guys trying out were congratulating me. Wow. So now the scouts come up to me and said, hey, we want you to go to um, another trial we have in Ornson Stadium. You know, like in two weeks. I said, okay. So a week before the tryout, you know, Southeastern is right there by Lake Texoma. So I go out on Lake Texoma. We're water skiing behind Dennis Rodman's boat. Rodman wasn't there, but the Rich family (laughs) that, uh, you know, if you know anything about Dennis Rodman, the Rich family or the family he lived with when he went to Southeastern. So they were out there. I was friends with them. and We were out having fun on the lake. And all of a sudden, I go to um, get up on a ski. And the rope snaps out of my hand. My hand hits the end of the ski. I didn't think much of it. I looked down and my hand's bleeding. Uh So I get out of the water and I look and the end, the tip of my um, ring finger on my left hand, on my ring finger is is just wide open, pouring blood. Uh And then my middle finger is bleeding too. So I go right to the emergency room. They have to put five stitches through my fingernail and the tip of my finger on my ring finger. And, um, I told the doctor, I said, well, I have a trout camp in a week. And he goes, well, you're not going to be able to go to that. I was like, okay. So he walked out of his office. I pilfered through his drawer, got some rubber gloves. Uh, I'm confession, <laughs> confessing to, to stealing right now, but I, I took a couple of rubber gloves and some gauze pads and put them in my pocket. I said, okay, thanks a lot. So now I got, <laughs> now I've got to get my hand ready, you know? So now I go, uh, I show up at the tryout camp. Before the tryout camp, I wrap my fingers as tight as I could with gauze. I put a rubber glove over my hand and then my batting glove. So I try and hide it because I didn't want to tell them I hurt my hand. Right. So we go do the, the typical tryout stuff. You run. I take ground balls. And um, the, the guy hitting me ground balls was Oscar Acosta. He was a, a coach of mine in the Meyer leagues after this. He's hitting rockets to me, and it's killing me every time I catch a ball. And I'm just grimacing, but I don't say anything. Now I go to get in the cage to hit, and the first swing, the bat flies out of my hand. I pick it up like nothing, and I hit, and they can tell I'm swinging gingerly. And and uh, they call me out, and I say, what's, what's wrong? And I pull my glove off and my rubber glove off and my gauze pads, and I show them my finger that I had the stitches through my fingernail and the tip of my finger. And they, you know, they ask what had happened. I explain what happened, and they said, well obviously you want to play pretty bad and say once you go home and get your hand ready we're going to draft you. I still didn't believe it was going to happen. So I go back to school and you know it's summertime I'm staying up there and all of a sudden on draft day it wasn't like it was today where you know you watch it on TV or you watch it on the internet. We didn't have internet. And we didn't even right. really have a TV in my in college <laughs> either. So So uh all of a sudden I get a knock on my door and it's my, my college coach, Mike Matheny, and he uh says, Jeffrey he goes, Uh, you got drafted by the Texas Rangers in the thirtieth round. Huh. And I was so excited and, and uh, you know, a couple of days later, Doug Gasway didn't want to drive all the way from Dallas to Durant. It's about a hundred miles, so he sent Jimmy Dreyer up there to sign me. And <laughs> so I signed my contract in Coach Matheny's office and um after I signed uh Jimmy Dreyer goes, Well did they tell you about your signing bonus? And I was like, No. He goes, Well you get two thousand dollars for signing. I was like, sweet. Let's go. <laughs> and then I went off and started my minor league career.
0: And then and after that you, you you played what, another ten years, uh you played ten years in the big leagues. Um let me ask you, what ever happened to your buddy who didn't go to the tryout?
1: He ended up getting drafted by
0: the Reds um, he made it to AAA.
1: First year, he won the batting title in the Pioneer League, the same league I was in. Um, but he he made it to AAA and never made it to the big leagues.
0: And yet, he was the one that, I guess, was ticketed for the big leagues coming out oh, of yeah. college.
1: Oh, I yeah. Mean, he's a stud, 6'2", two, 200 pounds, you know, home run hitter, could really run, really throw. He just... Kind of had a long swing and never really, um, you know. I mean, he still had a good minor league career, but never really
0: He didn't get a shot at the big leagues. Right. Which, you know, for for the casual fan, they may not appreciate just how hard it is to make it to the major leagues if you just look at the numbers. If you look at the number of players who are drafted and then the number of players who make it to the big leagues even if it's just for a cup of coffee, it's a very small percentage. It is very difficult to become a major league player. I think
1: it's less than 5% of the guys that get drafted. And when I got drafted, I think there was 50 rounds or more. When I was, I know one time it was unlimited because Piazza was like a 63rd rounder. But I think when I was got drafted, it was around 50 rounds. So figure 30 teams, 50 rounds, it's 1,500 players. Drafted, not all of them would sign, but most of them, and five percent of those guys even get
0: a cup of coffee. Right. So I'm pretty fortunate. Sure. Now you, as I said earlier, for your career, you were a two hundred and ninety hitter, but there was a time early in your career in the minor leagues where you were scuffling a little bit, and you, you tell the story of how a wiffle ball game or hitting wiffle balls. Actually helped turn you around uh, and and change your swing and all those types of things and I think that's a that's one of the more fascinating stories that I've ever heard because like nowadays you have you know there's coaches there's film and all these other types of things but you didn't have any of that when you made just your changes you said it was because of wiffle ball what happened yeah. there <laughs> that was crazy
1: <laughs> yeah well my first year rookie ball hit all right I hit 286 a short season and then the next year I went to uh Gastonia in low A ball and actually won the batting title um that year, hit three thirteen, I believe it was, and then went to the Florida State League and hit two seventy two. So I was I was hitting pretty good. Um but then I got the double A and it was a big jump. I mean these guys were throwing hard and I could hit the ball but I just wasn't strong enough I mean that's five five nine hundred and sixty five pounds, and so I just wasn't strong enough because the defenses were were getting better, the outfielders were faster, and balls that were hits in a ball were getting caught in double a, so I was probably hitting about two twenty after two months of the season, and you know hitting the same way I'd always hit, and it was like, man, uh, this might be it. I think I might have reached you know my max here and so after a game one night, we're in Wichita, Kansas, and we're staying in a hotel that has the, the enclosed pool, uh, like in the atrium area, and we're just goofing off, playing. Uh, actually, I think it was wiffle ball with like I mean, wiffle ball bat with like a, a ball of tape that we put together, and hmm. and so I'm imitating. Um, and I grew up playing wiffle ball, imitating everybody. I mean, you know, Willie McCovey and Cal Ripken and and George Brett, and Pete Rose. I mean, every at bat, I was a different guy. So I learned to hit it a lot of different ways. And so playing this game, I'm imitating at the time Ruben Sierra, who was a star with the Rangers, and he had this huge Mm -hmm. leg kick. And I never even messed around with a leg kick. So I'm hitting like Ruben Sierra, and I'm just in a very very dimly lit area, and somehow I'm just smashing this ball. And my my roommate, (laughs) Rick Rona, uh, who'd played in the big leagues of the Cubs, says, uh, why don't you hit like that in the game? I was like, I don't know. Why not? All right. So the next day we go to the field. It's a rain, rainy day, so we don't get to take DP. I go into the game. I used to kind of have not a wide-open stance, but I mean a wide stance, but kind of a crouch down, my hands in front. Now all of a sudden I'm standing up there like Steve Garvey. Remember Steve Garvey? kind of had the yeah. stiff stance.
2: Right, mm-hmm. And
1: now, as soon as the pitcher gets ready to throw, I raised my leg up, probably two foot off the ground, and put it down. I didn't even get to practice this. I went right into the game doing it. I went one for four, but I did hit a home run foul, which I didn't have much power, so that was unusual for me. Mm-hmm. And I went, I, and so I just started hitting that way. I went from that point in the season to leading our team in like nine or ten offensive categories hit over 300 um didn't make the double A all-star team but uh, one of the guys got injured who made it so they called me to the all-star game I told my agent at the time I said hey I got a I got a camp set up at home for the all-star break and I'm going to get paid 300 bucks and I really need I need to go get this money because I'm making 1200 a month in double A He goes no you got to go to the all-star game so I was like all right cuz I almost didn't even go I go mm-hmm. to the all-star game four for five, MVP of the all-star game. Then I go to winter ball after that to Venezuela with my new leg kick, go to Venezuela, hit 300, all-star team, voted most popular player in Venezuela. Next year I go to big league camp, Have a, should have made the team in big league camp, uh, but they had uh, Julio Franco, so that's all I need to say. <laughs> He's a star, right? Right. So I go to AAA. I play the first 89 games. Played every game. I hit over 300, and they call me to the big leagues. And um, I guess it was June of that year, June or July. I can't remember. Can't believe I can't remember the exact date. But it called up. Finished. You know, played the rest of the year in the big leagues. Ended up playing just over nine years in the big leagues with a leg kick.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. And 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 from goofing around in a hotel with a wiffle ball bat and a makeshift ball made out of tape and God knows what else. <laughs> yeah. with <was> no practice. <laughs> right. Right. You just incorporated it into the game. Man. That, that's an amazing, that, that's an amazing story. And then, like I said, you know, you, you went on in, in, in the big leagues, um, you know, was a very good, a very good hitter. Um, I'd like to transition though, into some of your current work as an agent. First of all, when when did you become a baseball agent?
1: I became a baseball agent in 2003. I um had some opportunities, you know, to become a scout and I'd been gone so many years so I didn't really want to be gone that much from my kids and stuff. They were little and and I could have become a coach too. Um but I mean that's basically you're gone if not, I mean, probably more even than the players, You're, you know, longer hours at the field. And I just, I didn't want to go back to the minor league and start riding buses again and coaching. I'd been in, gone for 15 years. So I wanted to stay in the game and had an opportunity with a friend to, uh, become a sports agent. And I said, what the heck? So I'd try it. That way I could stay in the game. And I always wanted to be on the side of the player. And, and I, didn't, I didn't want to be on the side of the, the coaches where, I felt like I would be betraying the players if, you know, if I knew a player was going to get released after, after the day of spring training, I didn't want to be, have to be fake and go up to him and say, Hey, good job today. You know, I couldn't, right. I couldn't see myself doing that. So I decided to become an agent and, um, you know, Darren is funny. My first client was Darren Oliver, who was my teammate. And at the time he was, uh, represented by scott boris and he calls me one day i'd just become an agent and he says hey i need your help i was like what's up he goes i need you to get me a job i said well you're you're represented by scott boris See, i can't do anything he goes well stay on the line i want you to hear me fire him and i was like (laughs) i was like no i said just call me back so he calls him back five minutes later said i fired him see what you can do well i had played with the rockies the year before. And I had a good friend who worked with the Rockies. Um, so I called him and uh, he got me in touch with the, the Rockies with, uh, Dan O'Dowd, who's a GM who knew me as a player. And I said, Hey, I became an agent now and, uh, I'm representing, uh, Darren Oliver. I just want to see if you have any interest. And he goes, yeah, we do have interest in Darren. He said, um, he said, we didn't before when Scott Morse called us at the beginning of the off season he says, but we haven't heard from him since and things have changed, so now we have interest. So we worked the deal. We got Darren spring training with the Rockies and um made the team, had to sign a forty five or thirty or forty five day contract because they didn't want to guarantee him the whole year, which you know, we were reluctant to do, but we were desperate. We really didn't have any any other options. So we took it and Darren ends up uh going to Colorado and learning a cutter from Bob Apodaca, the pitching coach, and it entirely changed his career around. And he played nine years in the big leagues after that. After he basically thought – after with nine years in the big leagues, he went to winter ball to try and revive his career. That's how, the you know, he was in a bad state in his career. He had some rough years in St. Louis and revived his career. He learned the cutter. He went, I think, the last five years or – five or six years in the big leagues, he had an ERA under three as a reliever. And
0: I mean, the rest is history. Yeah. And, and did you represent him for the rest of his career from that point when you took him on? Yes, I did.
1: And actually one year, one year he, he decided he was going to shut it down. So he told me he was done. I said, all right. And then like the next year he goes, Hey, I want to try and come back. So (laughs) I was like, well, I don't know. You know, when you sit out a year, I mean, at that age, it's kind of hard to get back. But I was friends with Sandy Johnson of the Mets, and I um, called Sandy. I said, "Hey," and because Sandy had been with the Rangers as assistant GM when Darren came up to the system, and so he knew Darren. He knew the quality of guy he was, and that was the, one of the things about Darren was, you know, he wasn't just good on the field; he was a great guy in the locker room and, you know, mentor to young guys. So he goes, "Hey, let me give you a call back." So sitting at home, and I'm not hearing anything. It's funny. So I was like bored out of my mind. So I was like, I'm going to go play golf. I'm not going to sit around all day and wait for Sandy to call me. So I'm on the third hole of the golf course, and all of a sudden I get a call from Sandy Johnson. It's windy out. So I crawl in the bushes to try and block <laughs> the wind. To try and block the wind. And I'm like, hey, Sandy, how's it going? He goes, hey, uh, Fry Burger. He goes, uh, let's get Darren Oliver over here. I was like, all right, let's do it. So we work out a deal for Darren to sign. I think he signed for six hundred grand after sitting out the year before and goes to the Mets and almost ended up pitching in Game 7 of the uh, of the uh, NLCS. It was between him and Oliver Perez. He ended up going to Oliver Perez. But, I mean, he had a great year and then pitched, I think, another five years after that.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, you know deals being done. I don't know if you got the deal done in the bushes, but at least the conversation started in the bush. <laughs> oh, it did. Funny. I mean, I
1: have another, another deal <laughs> with Brian Franklin. I get a call for Walt Jockety. And, um, I forget who else was on the call. It's like, Hey, it's a conference call. It's a full room of Cardinals front office people. And I'm sitting there with my newborn child screaming and crying, trying to change his diaper. I said, Hey, bear with me. I'm changing the diaper right now. Um, <laughs> um, and they said, "Hey, no worries." And uh, so we work out a deal for Ryan Franklin to become a, a cardinal, over the phone <laughs> when I'm changing a diaper. <laughs> but you never know where you're going to be when these deals happen. You know?
0: Yeah. I mean, that you know, and it's interesting because I think for those who work on the business side of sports, whether it's an agent or a lawyer, you work for the union, you work for the commissioner's office, or for a club, that's how it is. You know, it's it's not nine to five. It's not Monday through Friday. It's it's whenever and uh, 24
1: 7 so, yeah. you got to be ready and that's right that's why i thought I, I was like i'm just going to be honest with these guys and say hey this is what i'm doing i mean my life has to go on i have to take care of the things i have to take care of and i can do two things at once yeah that's <laughs> right
0: that's right i've had plenty of those calls too hey i'm washing the dishes hey i'm outside you know raking leaves <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? yeah and wherever no, you're at you don't mind again. the noise i'm good yeah. right I, and i can
1: get this deal done where no matter where I'm
0: at. <laughs> right. So in the agent business, um, what are the, some of the things I take it you like it? I mean, you've been doing it since 2003, so you must still enjoy it in some respects. So w- what are some of the things that you most enjoy about being an agent? And on the flip side of the coin, what are some of the things that you least enjoy? Yeah, I, I the,
1: The enjoyment side is, you know, seeing seeing a guy get drafted and and representing him his whole career and seeing him make the big leagues and, you know, just the pure joy that they feel and their family. I mean, it really it's almost like I made the big leagues. You know, when one of my guys makes it, and it's on the other end, it's, it's also pretty frustrating when, um, you know, you see a guy with so much promise who for whatever reason, doesn't pan out. And you never know what the reason is. Some guys have all the talent in the world and they just, I don't know if it's the bright, the lights are too bright or what, but they just don't seem to be able to make it at the highest level. And, you know, that's the, that's the downside. Um I enjoy the interaction with the players. Um, you know, I'll, I'll look every night before I go to bed at the computer and my um, league baseball.com and see how my guys did and see if maybe they need a pep talk or just hey, great game and send them messages. And I don't think that's what all the agents do. I would look every night at every player and see how they did. And then, you know, if they're in an over oh, a couple of days, I'd send them a note hey, you're going to get three hits tomorrow. So hang in there. You know, and that's not something that I had coming up. Mm. You know, Right. Yeah, you know, So I think that's something that I did different. My agent one time called me and said, "Hey, you need to steal more bases." I'm like, "What? Hmm. <laughs> what <are> you, talking <laughs> like? you think it's that easy? I can't steal first. Like, if I'm not on first. I can't I steal second. <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't like that. So you got to you got to balance that. You know, I'm not going to call and say, "Man, you haven't got any head in four days. What's wrong?" You know, that's how you lose clients. So you know, I think it's just the relationship part. You know, I've probably been to six or seven weddings of our clients and Mm -hmm. just seeing them grow, you know, and become men. And, and, you know, we tend to – Mike McCann and my partner and I, we tend to not represent people that we don't want to be associated with. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we want to represent good people um, that have good values and are going to be good people when their career is over because it doesn't last forever. And so those those are the kind of guys that we go after, and we've been, you know, pretty successful. It's a uh, it's a frustrating business, as you know. The uh, you know it's very cutthroat. I tell people a lot that you know I might be too nice of a guy to be an agent mm-hmm. because I, I'm not going to pretend like I'm your friend and then um, when you walk away, call your client and ask if he wants to have lunch. You know, and that's how the business is, and that's the part that I really don't like. The underhandedness, the you know, the backstabbing stuff is is you know, it's heartbreaking. When I lose the client, I've lost clients over the years, everybody does, but, you know, that I was attached to. I lost a client last year that I was there for the birth of both of his children. It represented him in college, all his minor league career, made the big leagues, helped him get uh, to play overseas and get a phone call one night saying that he needs somebody who has more contacts overseas. And I'm like, broke my heart. I couldn't sleep for like three days. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was like, man, all this, all these years, you know, I've been to your house for cookouts. I've done all these things, all for you, and then one phone call later, and you're kicking me to the curb. So those are hard. Those are hard. Those are tough days when, when you feel like you've done everything you can for somebody, and they just turn their back on you.
0: Sure. And you know, I've had my share of conversations with agents. You know, as you know, Jeff, I I do a lot of work for agents, have a number of agents as clients, and you know, I've I've been that shoulder or that ear sometimes that the agent needs when that happens. You know, when the player all of a sudden says, "I'm going in a different direction," or sometimes you know, you don't even get the courtesy of that, which makes it even that. Hard, that much harder to take as the agent right because you put so much into the player and it's a relationship and I think that's what you're describing when you say hey I've been there for kids I've been there for weddings I've seen you know this this young man grow from a from a teenager into a into a man and and for the relationship to end it's it's tough and I, I've and I, I hear it and I empathize so I know exactly what you mean that that's a tough part of the business
1: it is. And you know, that they've been promised something from somebody else, or somebody's actually come in and said, Hey, you know, I've heard this before. You know, you've outgrown your agent. Now you're a bigger star. So now you need us. It's <laughs> like these guys that didn't know who you were 10 years ago. And now all of a sudden you've graduated up to where now you're at their level. And it's like, what about the loyalty? That's the. I'm a loyal person. So I. it's hard for me to understand how someone can be cannot be loyal to somebody who's done everything they can for.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the challenge of the agent business. Right now we have a lot of agencies that are corporations, really. I mean, they they are large entities with, uh, you know, a large number of agents representing um, many players out there. Uh, in the marketplace. And you mentioned your your partner, Mike McCann, and it's the two of you and the other agents, some are agents who are solo agents. And I often wonder how do you compete in an environment that has over the years grown a bit more corporate where you have some of these large agencies out there that can provide a wide array of services because they have greater resources and obviously, those become recruiting tools. And I'm using air quotes here, recruiting tools. Um, mm-hmm. So um, how do you compete in that kind of a, an environment? It's tough.
1: It's really tough. And and we I mean, we can't really compete with, you know, the great big companies that have 20 employees that are running around the country. And, and they can say, oh, well, we represent Mike Trout or we represent. Yeah, you know, Freddie Freeman or we represent this guy, Aaron Judge. It's kinda of hard to compete against those guys. So we basically don't try to. We just we have our little niche and to be honest, Jeff, most of our clients we get now are through referrals. You know, either clients that we have um like the work we've done for them and a player will come to them and say that they're not happy with their agent and say, Why don't you talk to my guy? That's good. I mean that to me, that's an endorsement on what we've done, um, but we, I can't go out and you know recruit amateurs, you know, twenty-four-seven because I can't be at their games all the time. I have mm-hmm. you know, I have kids. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, right. I'm not a twenty-five-year-old that can spend seven days a week at a ballpark, and <laughs> you know, sometimes that's what people want. But uh, you know, a lot of the the a lot of the guys we're getting nowadays, or you know, a scout will say, "Hey, this guy needs an agent." You're the guy I recommended. Um, you know, it's just, it's tough to compete at that level. We try not to. We never want to be a great big giant company. We want to have our handful of guys that we represent do a good job for those guys. And I think, you know, once you get too big, then the service, um, you run out of time to service everybody. And, and so you end up losing clients that way. And We never wanted to do that.
0: Sure. Yeah. It's a tough business. The agent business is tough, and you know my hat my hat is off to to you and to uh, and all the agents out there because it it's a really tough business. And you know, Jeff, I've spent a fair number of years teaching at at, at the law school, at St. John's Law School, and you know, I run into so many young students and young graduates who believe they want to be an agent. And I don't try to discourage them, but I do try to give them the truth about what they should expect, because it's not Jerry Maguire. It's not Arliss. It's not, you know, there's a lot of things that go into this that no one really talks about. And you won't know about it till you get there. But I try to give them a heads up uh, before they make that plunge. Yeah, I do the same.
1: I, I call time to time about, oh, I have a, you know, my nephew or whatever. Um is looking to get into being a sports agent so I'll talk to them and just kind of give them an idea of what it's like and how cutthroat it can be and you know it's I don't always know where they can start out for me obviously it started out you know as being a player and going into it without any real knowledge except the contract negotiations that I went through when I was a player with my agent um, but a lot of the competition are lawyers not many um, our former players and I, I know I went to the the agent meetings a few years ago and they named me and Scott Sanderson and I believe um, Dave Stewart was an agent at the time and they said we're three form the only three former players that own their own companies wow so that was pretty that was pretty cool
0: yeah I never thought about that I know that there are a few agents who are um who who do who are a, uh, former players who are agents but um I didn't know it was only 3 who actually owned their own companies so that's interesting um yeah. hey let's uh let's talk a little bit now about what you're doing these days and I think you know on, on the broadcasting side and I think you're having some fun with uh the work that you're doing on on Fox Sports Southwest where you do pre-game and post-game work uh, on the Rangers broadcast T- tell us first of all how how, how are you enjoying the, the new gig
1: oh I'm loving it I'm loving it it's something that um you know I, I never envisioned myself doing to be honest but I think the more I watch it seems like I've always got the MLB network on TV and I see you know my former teammates Billy Ripken and and um Dan Plesek on there and, I was like, man, I can do this, and and I watch the Rangers, and I see Mark McLemore as my teammate, and Darren Oliver, and Pudge Rodriguez, and so it was funny. It was last year, I'd gone out to the uh, Rangers game, and down on the field with this young man who was um, brought down there. Um, he had just a doctor friend of mine made a prosthetic finger for him, and um, we wanted to bring him down there, and get to meet some of the coaches and players and stuff, so while I was down there, I ran into John Blake, who's been a longtime PR man in, in baseball for the Rangers and Red Sox. And um, we were friends. And um, I ran into him and I said, Hey, John, I said, if you need anybody to uh, fill in on the Rangers pre and post game show, I'd be interested. And he was shocked. He's like, Really? And I was like, Yeah, I said, why not? I think I could do it. So it, it kind of, nothing happened for a month or two. And finally, I sent him an email and I said, Hey, whatever happened with that deal? And he goes, Oh, well, let me. Let me get you in let me get you in touch with uh uh let me get you in touch with uh Fox Sports. So I um go in for an interview with Fox Sports Southwest and within ten minutes they said, Hey, we're interested, so if you're interested, let's do this and so I've done uh twelve games so far this year. I'm doing uh, a game tonight and a game tomorrow and um kinda learning the tricks of the trade. Um still trying to figure out which camera to look at
0: but I've got some good
1: stories. <laughs> I've got some good stories. And, uh, right. you know, it, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Now did you audition or did you interview? What was the, you know, what was your meeting like? Did they want to see if you had any skills? <laughs> or how, how did that go? It was literally 10 minutes, maybe
1: 15 at the max. But I just went in and talked to these two guys and, um, the producer show and just kind of just told them my story a little bit. and. Um, that was it. That, no, I mean, that was literally it. I showed Not up. Really. Uh, well, I, I came one day before my first show and kind of stayed in on the set and watched how things went down. And the next day I did a show. Um, they did probably a 20-second. Uh, they got me up there on the set and said, all right, talk into the mic for about 30 seconds. They didn't tell me what to talk about either. I just started talking. And uh, I said, okay, you'll be fine. And then I went right into my first, right into my first show and uh, without any practice. And, uh, yeah, I think I've gotten better every show. I, uh, after, like, my fifth show, uh, they called me in and said, hey, we just, uh, you know, we think you're doing a good job. And at, probably after my eighth show, I get a call from the producer who says, I just watched the show. And he says, that was really good. He goes, who have you been talking to? I said, I haven't been talking to anybody. You know, I just, I just, you know, talking baseball, and the first couple shows I was, you know, probably overprepared. I'm, like, taking notes on all this stuff and trying to make sure I said the right, you know, what they wanted me to say, and um, that wasn't me. And so after probably five shows, I, you know, I stopped taking notes, and I was like, I'm just going to talk baseball. I, I'm going to watch the game. I know I'll watch the game like the night before I go on, so I know what happened the previous night, and we'll talk about that. And then I'll watch the game after the first, after the pregame show. I'll watch the game three hours and, you know, just remember things that happened during the game. And then we'll talk about it after. And that's it, just, but really without any practice.
0: I mean, Jeff, that's a remarkable story because it's like you just you, you got thrown into the fire. Um, no prep, no broadcasting boot camp because I've heard stories of former players and others who go through certain paces before they get on air, and you you got on air, it seems to me uh <laughs> after just some, some brief observation and talking into the microphone for thirty seconds.
1: <laughs> yeah, I voluntarily threw myself into the fire. <laughs> That's yeah. what everybody's like. Man, are you nervous? Because it's live. There's no delay. There's nothing. I mean, it's live. And uh, I was like, No, I'm not nervous. I mean, I'm just up there. You know, I've lived this game. You know, my whole life. I've, you know, I played baseball since I can remember. Since I was mm-hmm. eight years old, I started little league, and then it was, you know, off to high school, college, and minor leagues, and the big leagues. And then, you know, I probably had a few months break before I became a sports agent. So it's been my whole life. And you know, I don't need to. I don't, you know, I don't think I have many ticks when I talk and say a whole lot of stuff, <laughs> you know, like a whole lot of you knows or and, uh, and, uh, at least I, <laughs> you know, at least I didn't know, you know, sometimes you don't know if you have those things until you watch yourself, but I critique my shows, which after talking to people that also do this, they say you don't need to do that because you'll be too critical of yourself. Uh, but I do like to watch just to see if there's things I can improve on because, you know, I'd like this for this to lead into something. You know, I'd like to be on the MLB Network or ESPN someday. I was always the when I played, I was always the clown on the team, the joker, the guy who always was goofing around. And I think that plays on you know, at least on the MLB Network, because I see a lot of that as someone who knows the game sure. but also can make it seem funny. And you know, that's just kind of who I've been my whole life.
0: Right. Well. I hope um, people on, on the network and ESPN get a load of this podcast because you heard Jeff say he would like to be on the network for <laughs> ESPN. So we're putting it out there right now. So Let's do it, fellas. Come on. Make that's right. That's right. <laughs> Let me ask you a couple of questions before we go. And, uh, and it's, it's about broadcasting. And for me, you know, I watch baseball and, and for all sports. I, I don't like homers. You know, I don't like those announcers who are, I understand you're going to have some bias to the home team because they're paying you. So I get that. But, you know, too much of a homer for me is a turnoff because sometimes the team is not good or it's not playing well or mistakes are being made. And so how do you go about that? I know it's early, but have you thought about that somewhat of, hey, I want to be true to my employer, you know, to the, to the, uh, to the network, but also too, I have a responsibility to the fans that are watching.
1: Yeah. And I talked to them before I ever went on and said, Hey, you know, do I have to pretend like we're good if we're not, or vice versa? And they said, well, we'd like to give a positive spin, you know, a pregame show, you know, before every, every game, we, I mean, we have just as good a chance of win as the other team. So. Let's go out there and have a positive spin and talk about the good things that happened the night before, but you know once the game's over, and you know if we lost twelve to nothing and got two hits, it's kind of hard to, to put a positive spin on that, so I try not to be too critical of guys, but I will point out things where you know I think if a player made a mistake or or should have done something in my mind that you know would have helped him be successful, but I also do remember. You know, I think a lot of people forget, Jeff, is how hard the game is. And when I played, it wasn't that easy. And these are the mm-hmm. best players in the world. There's, you know, there's 700, I tell these people all the time, like, there's 750 major leaguers in the world, and there's over 7 billion people. So yeah. you're in a select group, and these guys are the best in the world, and they're competing against other guys who are the best in the world. And so it's, you know, this game is easy from your couch. You know, when you you see it, it doesn't you don't you don't realize the speed of the game, and it, it's hard to notice that when you're watching it on television. So I kind of keep that in mind, but I'm not afraid to say if a guy, you know, if a guy makes an error, he knows he made a mistake. That's part of the game. That's why they have the e on the scoreboard after the runs and the hits. It's because it's part of the game. You're it's right. more the mental mistakes or maybe you know in game situations where things happen that you know could cost your team a game, some little fundamental mistake that I like to point out. But the players know, the players know when you make a mistake or when you do something good. So we just like to point that out.
0: Right, right. And you're right. I mean, it's, you know, in talking to to former players and current players, I mean, the the difficulty of the game cannot be uh, overstated. So. Uh, but you know Jeff I, I really enjoyed the conversation today because of all the things we touched on you know the aspects of a player and and as an agent and as a broadcaster and um I'm hoping that I'm hoping that you continue to have success both in the agent business and and in the and in your current work in the broadcasting that you keep getting more and more opportunities to do that but um i do want to thank you for taking some time today and and you've been very good i mean it's on very short notice too so i appreciate you coming on today and and sharing some really fascinating things with us so well,
1: i appreciate you have me on jeff and i appreciate working you working with you over the years you know the arbitration cases and um, you know hopefully our friendship can continue can continue to grow
0: yeah, I, I I sure hope so as well, Jeff. I always enjoyed the time to, uh, speaking with you and certainly enjoyed it today. So thank you very much. You're welcome, buddy. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Jeff Fry. His take on the game was enlightening and refreshing at the same time. Jeff is one of the good guys in the baseball business, man. I'm privileged to know him and to call him a friend. As we prepare to pack up, don't forget to tell your friends that there are great things going on at Sports 360. Make sure you subscribe so you can be right there with us as it all goes down. Scully is in the wings, and I don't want to keep him waiting, so it's time to bounce. See you next time. Sports 360.